The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. We've got a fairly lengthy scripture reading this morning, so uh, you can remain seated, but uh, let's make sure that the posture of our hearts is standing at attention for God's sacred words. We are in Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, I will be omitting um, a sizable chunk of chapter 34, not because it's not important, but just because um, it's a large section, and um, we, w- we will uh, address what's in those verses. So, Exodus 33, hear what Holy Scripture says. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend And stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. 
So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And now skipping down to verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. We thank you that, um, Lord, that we're your people. We thank you that your presence is here with us. Lord, we thank you for preserving us this past week even. Um, Sometimes it can feel like... um, we have church activities, and, and then we can put you out of our minds, but we know that you are with us every moment of every day. You are working in us. You are working through us. Lord, I want to thank you for the generous donations that were given the past few weeks to the immigrants and asylum seekers of, of winter clothing. Lord, we pray for our partners at City Lights Church. We ask that they would... Um, their ministry would thrive as they uh, pass out these clothes. We ask that you would um, cause many relationships to form with uh, refugees. We ask that um, those who, um, who are receiving help would also be woven into the community, that they would find good churches there in the city, and that you would heal them and restore them. Lord, as we turn to look at your word now, We're reminded of Psalm 84. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. God, I pray that that would truly be the song of our hearts as we think about the gift of your presence. So help us now by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You know, one of the saddest things to watch is uh, when a spouse or a young adult has some sort of behavioral issue where they keep doing things to hurt the people that they love, even though they've been warned that it will force the loved one to separate from them or kick them out. 
You can think of a teenager who keeps bringing drugs into the house that the parents simply can't have around the younger kids. Or a young man who joined a gang and he brings the constant danger of violence home with him. Or an adulterer who can't seem to turn a corner even though he or she knows that's not really the life they want or the person they want to be. And so they find themselves left to themselves. And this is our situation exactly. Like Israel in chapter 32, we have cheated on God. We have corrupted the possibility for him to dwell with us. We have done a sort of violence to his family. We have betrayed him personally. And so we face a lonely predicament. We can't live with God, but we also can't live without him. Last week we saw that God somewhat just left the people in limbo, sitting in that darkness that comes with regret. And if the Holy Spirit is working in us this morning, we can all identify with that feeling because idolatry always starts with a big promise for fulfillment, but after a brief moment of excitement, it leaves us feeling dirty and isolated in the dark. Maybe you felt that even earlier this week, maybe even this morning, as you chose to devote yourself to something that was incompatible with God's good household rules. Now, we know that our sin is covered by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. We know that God's not going to wipe us out. But is there a low-grade feeling of distance that's emerged in how you relate to God? You tell yourself that he would be right to avoid you and that things will never really be the same as that exciting season when he first took you as his own. Well, in one sense, your intuitions are right. Sin is that destructive It should create distance from God. But in another sense, you couldn't be more wrong because the go-between work of Jesus ensures that the gift of God's presence remains with his people. So let's see how that was foreshadowed for us, even here among the old covenant people of God. So let's look at an outline of where we're going to go as we study these chapters. First, we're going to see the problem of distance. Then we're going to think about the hope of a close one, someone who is able to penetrate into the distance and close it. We'll think about the heart of the intercessor that we need. What does that person look like? Then we'll think about the God who reveals himself. And lastly, that will all lead us to the possibility of closeness. So we're going to think about how our greatest need, God with us, is freely given through the continued work of the mediator. So, As we read this narrative in verses 1 and 2, we are initially relieved because after the interruption of the golden calf incident, God is still moving forward with his plan. Just like Moses noted in chapter 32, verse 13, the faithful God had to be faithful to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He had to uh, fulfill what he had said and bring them into the good land. So God agrees here. He is going to do that. He is going to guide and protect Israel, guide them into the land, though from a distance. So initially we're like, crisis averted. But then comes a shocking adjustment to the plan in verse 3. He says, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember all those chapters about a formal covenant, all those plans for the tabernacle that were laid out so that God could dwell in their midst, all those details about a priesthood that would be established to mediate his presence to the people. Well, now all of that was being called off. God says there's no way he could dwell in their midst. Verse 5, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So he's breaking up with them for their own protection. As one scholar said, they were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservation. Imagine getting that that sinking feeling. You receive a breakup text right as the plane door closes, and you look down at the empty seat next to you. So the people here respond exactly as they should have. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They understood that God himself was the substance of all of their hopes. Do we understand that? 
If God said, I'm going to give you a situation of abundance, and I'm going to protect you, I'm going to guide you, but I'm not going with you, would you be devastated? Or would you be like, sweet, that's what I needed from you, God. Um, you know, maybe it's best that you're not too close anyway because that whole holiness problem, we'll both be happier this way. Sometimes we live like that's all we want, the blessings of God without actual relationship with God. So here's a test. If you got to heaven and you had all your favorite people and all your favorite pursuits and the, the adventure and, and fascinating things to discover and enjoy, but you had no God, he just kind of, he left you alone. You never saw him, never interacted with him. It's like he wasn't there. Would that bother you? If not, beware, because if you want the privileges of God without God himself, you could very well end up with neither in the end. God himself is the reward. These Israelites at least begin to see that, and that's why they will have a future after idolatry. So they show their remorse by taking off ornaments. And the golden calf, you know, had been made from jewelry. So now Yahweh wants them to just take off what's left. It's a way for them to say, we don't trust ourselves to even have adornment right now. We just need to sit before God in simplicity. And I don't want to make too much of it, but I wanted to ask, what do you do when sin runs its course and has left you empty? How do you move on from there? Do you compartmentalize? Do you just binge on ice cream or, you know, stream the newest episode of something? Do you head out to the store and treat yourself? Well, instead, there may be wisdom, like the Israelites did, in stripping yourself of what's fancy and flashy and fun and just sitting still in simplicity for a hot second. That willingness to be unadorned before God that can then help to bring about a restored perspective. Empty hands are the ones that reach out to him the best. Well, as sad as it is that the tablets were broken and now the tabernacle project is canceled, it's a very good sign that Israel is mournful. This is going to be a formative time for them when they really begin to see the seriousness of sin and to understand the treasure of God's presence. When God feels distanced, distant, this is where we need to start. We humble ourselves. We mourn his absence. And when our hearts respond in that way, it's a very good sign that the problem of distance doesn't need to be permanent. God is starting to do something good. So let's look at the hope of a close one. Verses 7 through 11 bring along this significant glimmer of hope. The hope of someone who can draw close to God. In the midst of this people who are distant from God, one man hasn't corrupted himself, and he has determined to seek God on behalf of the people. God had canceled the tabernacle project for inside the camp, but Moses just takes an ordinary tent and he goes outside the camp, and God would meet him there. The pillar of cloud would descend and would stand right there in front of the tent, and behind the barrier of that cloud, the Lord would then speak with Moses. Verse 11 says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And this personal tent-going habit that emerged on the part of Moses had a profound impact on the rest of the camp. Others started to go there to seek the Lord as well. It says, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. You can kind of imagine like, what that would have been like, the whispers, like, look, he's going again. How does he do it? What, I wonder what it's like. I hope you ask God to be kind to us. We read that when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tents, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. So Israel had been told that the presence of the Lord is no longer for them, and yet here is their leader experiencing that very presence of the Lord. Moses is now clearly their only hope. The same Israelites who a chapter ago had dismissed and rejected him now honor him. And they've grown in this humble awe of the presence of the Lord instead of taking it for granted. Now, of course, Moses was a prophet, but later we're going to see that in Christ, we too can approach God just as boldly. So notice the impact here that one person truly seeking God can have. 
Moses wasn't trying to get the people's attention. Last chapter, I'm pretty sure he entered that zone where he just didn't give a rip. But he knows what they need. More precisely, he knows who they need. And so he goes to seek him. And may the same be said of each of us as we seek God for ourselves, for our friends, for our families, our coworkers, our church. We don't seek God so that we'll look holy. It shouldn't be done in a showboating sort of way. We're not drawing attention to ourselves. But if you're consistent and you are truly seeking God without giving a rip about what others think of you, then one side benefit is that God can use that to make an aroma of the holy just fall throughout the camp. And soon others could begin seeking God too because they are given courage and conviction by your example, and that can be really the start of a big adventure for the whole community. But again, revival like that will only happen when we're seeking God sincerely, not out of trying to influence others. So may God raise up, as Psalm 24 says, a generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Here in Exodus, remember, the whole covenant with God was at stake. He had promised them, you will be my people and I will be your God. But because of the problem of idolatry, the situation now was more like, okay, I'll get you through this transition. And what's beautiful about Moses is that he is not content to be the only one with access to God's presence. He has been raised up for this particular moment. So in verses 12 through 23, let's take a look at the heart of the intercessor that the people of God need. Moses steps into the distance between God and the people, and he boldly pursues God with three questions. First, in verses 12 and 13, Moses asks God, will you be with me? Singular, will you be with me? He says, you've charged me to take your people to the promised land so that you can fulfill your promise and then, I don't know, wash your hands of them. Well, how in the world am I even supposed to do that? Are you really just sending an angel? You've said that you know me by name and that I've found favor in your sight. So if that's really true, then show me your ways so that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And don't forget that this is your people, whether you like it or not. And what an incredible model this is for us as we carry out any sort of shepherding responsibility, maybe over your family or as you seek to influence others for Christ. How are you going to prepare for that? How are you going to go about that really impossible work? How are you going to respond when you run into your limitations? Are you going to rely on business principles or people management techniques? Are you going to look for tools from psychology or sociology or like some popular podcast wisdom? Those things can be useful. It's common grace, but that's not what you need most of all. You need to seek God. You need to tell him that you can't do what it seems like he's put you here to do unless he's with you. You need to ask him to step in for the good of his people, even those who have yet to become his people, and tell him that your greatest desire is to know him. You know that you have favor in his sight because of Christ. So now, if that's true, God, I want to know you. And Moses' gutsy ask here is a success. God answers in verse 14, my presence will go with you, singular you, Moses, and I will give you rest. He didn't even ask for rest, but God sees that that's what he needs. It seems like God is saying, look, this presence in which I'm talking to you right now, in the cloud at your tent of meeting. I'm going to keep meeting with you like this, Moses. And I can also see that this task is too much for you. So know that I'll give you rest. I don't think he's talking about a day off or a summer vacation. He's talking about rest for Moses' soul, that he will experience a state of peace in God as the journey goes on. Well, that went well, but Moses isn't satisfied. He has a second request. His second request is, be with us, plural. Don't just be with me. Cause your presence to be with us. So what's happening is Moses is haggling like a Middle Easterner, frankly. He, he builds on what's already been granted, 
And then it's like it's like he's in the bazaar negotiating a deal. He's like then he just he takes what God has said and he adds a little bit in a subtle way, like, and what about this? So listen carefully to what he does, starting in verse 15. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Yeah, Moses had secured God's presence for himself, but now he's insisting that God not see him as somehow separate from his people. And notice like how, how, as a bargainer would, he just pretends this willingness to walk away from the deal. He's like, if you don't go with us, then just leave us here. We might as well be in a desolate place if we don't have you. And he also boldly says, God, I'm not really going to feel that I have favor in your sight unless you make us a distinct people that carries your presence with us different from every other people on the face of the earth. So you want to show me favor? This is how you can do it. Now, in all of this, the text presents it a bit like a a negotiation between Moses and God where Moses is somehow getting God to do things he doesn't want to do. And like we saw last week, we know from the rest of Scripture what's behind that, that God has actually raised up Moses to serve in exactly this position as a go-between, not only to teach the people how to engage with God, but more importantly, to foreshadow the go-between work of the greater Moses, Jesus. Because no human being has been the unique, close one to God to the extent that Jesus was. Moses was a faithful servant. Jesus is the very son of God in communion with the father from all eternity past, having lived his earthly life, seeking God with his whole heart. So Jesus was not surprised when at his baptism, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And again, what we see in Moses is an exaggerated play acting version of the role that would ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus alone. He is our covenant leader. The fact that Jesus has favor in the Father's sight means that the presence of God will go with us in our journey to the promised land, despite our idolatry. And Jesus insists that he not somehow be seen as separate from his people. The blessing he deserves, he wants us to be given. And of course, it's the Father's good pleasure to agree to see us in this way and to send his Holy Spirit to dwell among us in this way through Jesus because it was, after all, his plan of redemption from the very beginning. So understanding this intercession of Jesus, which continues for us even now, this is important for us to grasp. We need to think rightly about who we are and why we are the people of God. What makes us as Christians, distinct? Is it that we are better people than everyone else? No, just like the idolatrous Israelites, we can often make ourselves look worse than the people around us. Are we distinct because we pursue God? At a core level, no. Like the Israelites, we depend on the mediator to have any hope of seeking God because he has no reason to listen to us, to, for us to let us approach him. He has no interest in being sought by hypocrites. We need a mediator. So what makes us distinct is that God is with us by grace, by his choice, because of Jesus. Do we see that it's God's presence freely given that makes us his people? When we really grasp that, then we'll want to increasingly experience that presence. And Just as it was for Moses, the the benefits of God become meaningless to us if we can't know him more. What good is a land of milk and honey without God? That's how the people of Jesus learned to think. And we learned it from Jesus. Jesus left God's presence out of obedience so that we could enter God's presence. Just as Moses was willing to renounce the promised land unless God came to dwell among his people. Well, again, Moses' gutsy request works. Verse 17, the Lord answers, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So this response effectively means that the tabernacle project is back on. 
because that was the means by which God's presence was going to be among the people. But Moses still isn't satisfied. Remember, his first request included his desire to know God, and and God had conceded, yeah, I will go with you. And he said, I will go with your people. And he even threw in, I do know you by name. But Moses responds with a third request that says, great, thanks for all that, but still, I'm serious. I want to know you. The third request is, please, show me your glory. He wants to. He has to know what God is like in all of his wonder and beauty and weightiness. But wait a minute. Hadn't, hadn't Moses already somehow seen God? In chapter 24, Aaron and the 70 elders went up with Moses and had a meal in the presence of God. And, and hadn't Moses somehow seen God at the tent of meeting outside the camp when the cloud descended, they spoke face to face? So what exactly had Moses already seen and what more is he asking for here? And we know from all of scripture that God is unseen spirit. Spirit, he's not some sort of old man in the clouds like the Renaissance paintings show. Uh, he's spirit. Now that being said, there are a number of examples in scripture where God can communicate something about his essence through exhibiting a form which the prophets beheld. This shouldn't be viewed like, well, God is a shapeshifter. Because even when those visions were given, it's not as if he was limited to that space in which that form was manifest. He was still spirit. And then it's further complicated because we've got a number of anthropomorphisms here. So, in other words ways in which human attributes are used to describe God. Like he, his, he has a face, his hand, his back, he's standing. These sorts of things are, are used because it's simply the easiest way for us to get our minds around what's happening. So God agrees to show Moses his glory, but then he qualifies it in verse 20. He says, but you cannot see my face, uh, for man shall not see me and live. So whatever that that um, essential essence is, um, such as we would see in someone's face. That's something that Moses could not look on. So the plan is that God is going to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock and will cover him with his hand until he's passed by. He says, then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Well, if God's face shall not be seen, what did it mean in chapter 33, verse 11, when it said that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face? I think only two possibilities exist. One is that in that verse, face to face just means up close and personal. Another possibility, though, is that this is purposefully hinting that there is differentiation in God, uh, which the New Testament would clarify as the Trinity is more fully expressed. So if that's what's going on, then maybe it was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who, you know, we've also talked about how he might be associated with the angel of the Lord because sometimes that that angel of the Lord is just talked about like an angel. Sometimes it seems to be God himself. So maybe that's who Moses is seeing face to face, God the Son, before the actual incarnation when he was born as Jesus because John 1 says that no one has ever seen God but he, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Well, this is a lot of speculation, okay? And we don't want to be distracted from the main storyline. So let's just say that Moses had witnessed incredible manifestations of who God is and those encounters had been real but never full and he wants more. He's longing for more. He wants to grasp God more. And God doesn't reject his request, but he does adjust it for what's possible for Moses' benefit. And part of that adjustment we can see is that God is directing him away from just what can be seen to what can be heard. He says he will proclaim before Moses his name Yahweh, and Moses will understand more of the implications of that name. You know, side note, often we are very keen to see something of God, but Maybe what we need most of all is to truly hear more of his character. Well, this third request from Moses seems to have particularly pleased God. We, we can see that in chapter 34, verse 1, uh, the fact that the covenant is back on. He, Moses needs new tablets. But let's just pause here before we move on from Moses 
intercession and ask what kind of person could intercede like this? What kind of person would, um, would do this? You know, where Moses basically receives everything he asked. God has already agreed to what he was asking. And Moses says, that's not enough. I want to know you. I want to grasp you more. It's, it's a, quite an example for us, isn't it? Because if you only love God for what he gives, then what are you going to do when he withholds that? You're going to walk away from it all. That's what you're going to do. What will sustain you in the wilderness if you don't long for and enjoy God himself? That's why we want to be like Moses. And Moses was like Jesus. Pursuing God the Father because you long to see him, period. That's why Moses was so unique. And that is a beautiful example for us. So we've seen Moses' intercession. Let's move on to think about the God who reveals himself. Why is God so pleased? Why is God willing now suddenly to enter into agreement with this idolatrous people? They haven't really changed much. Um, We know from the rest of Scripture they will be idolatrous again. So who is this God now willing to reveal himself to Moses? We learn a lot about God from this encounter. And that's why these words that we're about to read are repeated a number of times in the rest of the Bible. Moses did see something that day, but what he saw is translated for us into what he actually heard. And what he heard was God's character. What we need to understand about God is his character. And um, it starts in thirty-three nineteen. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So whatever else is going to be shown about God, it fits under this category of goodness. God is good. That's a controlling thought here. Second, he gives these preview words. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What does that communicate? God is free. He's free to do as he pleases. He is gracious. He is merciful, but it is a sovereign grace. God is not an equation. His actions can't be predicted by our logic. It is solely God's decision when and on whom he bestows grace. He says, I will be gracious if it pleases me, when it pleases me, for the reasons it pleases me, to whom it pleases me. Many people feel threatened by a God like this. We prefer to pretend that there are rules by which we can make sure his grace descends in a certain way, in a certain situation, but there aren't. If that's troubling to you, ask, well, what other sort of divinity would choose to re-engage a rebellious people like this? Take them to himself and dwell in their midst. Only a God who is good and a God who is free. Well, down in 34 verse 6, we see the center of this encounter. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There are seven terms here that speak of God's favor. He is one, merciful, two, gracious, three, slow to anger, four, abounding in steadfast love, five, abounding in faithfulness, six, keeping steadfast love, seven, forgiving So taken all together, these terms show us an essential drive in God to show favor. It's immeasurably beyond any human predisposition. God loves because he loves. God will be faithful to his own because he is faithful. He's persistent in expressing favor all throughout human history. He's reluctant to act against his creation, even when it's in rebellion. And whatever God is committed to, we can be absolutely certain that he will do it. So these, there's these seven expressions of favor. They're then paired with two expressions of disfavor. One, he will by no means clear the guilty. 
Two, he will deliver judgment on sin that will reach even to the second, third, and fourth generation. And we spoke in chapter 20 about how we've all seen that impact that sin can have in a family, that it's not easily wiped out. And in most cultures and times, three to four generations could even live in the same house at the same time. Well, you've got seven favorable actions uh, that are uh, targeting thousands of generations. Then you've got two favorable, disfavorable descriptions reaching to the fourth generation. Now, I don't think any of us would want a God who doesn't address evil, but why does this description of God sometimes feel like it, it creates more tension than it solves? Put one way, we have to learn to embrace the, the complexity of God instead of flattening him. Pastor Kevin DeYoung has said that most of us have a one-dimensional God. He says either we have a God who's always carrying around cookies, like, oh, you have an owie here, have a cookie, or he's always carrying around a clipboard. Uh-huh, I saw that. It'll dock you a few points there. Uh, and this is how we flatten God and trivialize him. We want him to be either unthreatening and benign, or we see his scrutiny as targeting us constantly, as if the emphasis in this description were on his wrath rather than on his mercy. So I want to encourage you not to live in either of those ways. Understand God's goodness, that it involves both categories, his grace and his calling sin to an account. And those don't look flat. They don't look like cookies and clipboards. It's more like the most satisfying water and the most penetrating fire somehow existing in the same space. And so we feel tension because that doesn't make sense to our logic. How could he be merciful and gracious while also punishing evil in which we've all participated? There's a contradiction at the center of it. God forgives, God punishes, is, is God bipolar? One Bible scholar noted, it is this contradiction that makes the God of the Bible interesting credible, and dangerous. How can we resolve the tension? There's only one way that these things can all be true of God, and that is in Jesus Christ. For those who will experience God's mercy, the visiting of their iniquity upon them was undergone by a substitute. And because God is free, that shift of judgment to Jesus can interrupt a generational cycle at any time. The guilty are never cleared, but if they are found in Jesus Christ, then they die for their sin and are raised to new life within his own person. And these are profound realities. And in response to the revelation of these verses, Moses bows down and worships. And then I, I just want you to see how persistent Moses is. Because Christ, as our covenant leader, is even more persistent in his advocacy for us. So Moses says, as a follow-up to all this, he says, uh, God, you are merciful, gracious, loving. Those qualities, exactly. That's why we need you to go in our midst. Because it is a stiff-necked people. And take us for your inheritance. So do you see how effective prayer is always based on what God has said or done? And that's where we start. God answers Moses, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So the distance is gone. The covenant is back. The mediation has succeeded because God is good and God is free. Verses 10 through 28. Then show Moses writing down some restatements of key laws uh, we're not going to look at those in detail today, but if you look at them on your own, uh, you can see that they, um, they mostly are laws that emphasize how Israel is to be distinct among all the nations and that work to prevent idolatry from gaining a foothold again. Then the last verses of our passage return to the tent of meeting but in a new way. The distance between God and his people has been closed through the work of the covenant mediator, and now that mediator has something of God to show to all of the people. Verses 29 through 35 show us the possibility of closeness. It's one thing for Moses here, or, or Jesus 
on the Mount of Transfiguration to go up and to be in the midst of a cloud, but how can we as the people of God know this presence for ourselves? Short answer, the one carrying the glory of God comes down off the mountain and shares the revelation with everyone else. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Well, what do we make of this, this shining face of Moses? One thing is that Moses shows us how we need Jesus. We can be close to God because Jesus stepped into that distance and brought us close. And though no one can see God in his glory, in Jesus we do see the glory of God. Just as the glory radiated from the face of Moses, even more from Jesus himself. In Jesus, we can see God and live. In fact, we can really live in a way that we never had before. Jesus came down from the presence of God and passes the revelation of God onto us. Moses could only do this in part. The people were scared of the glory on his face, and, and out of modesty, he covered it with a veil, but that veil was also a reminder that they didn't truly have access for themselves. In Moses, it was only a derivative sort of access. It was just a partial revealing of the glory. So Moses shows us how we need Jesus. Jesus alone, as the final mediator, allows us to behold God for ourselves, and he doesn't need to hide behind a veil, but rather he, brought, he actually brought us up the mountain with him. I think this is, this is some beautiful imagery in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is like a new Moses, and the people are up there on the mountain hearing the very words of God for themselves. Or Peter remembers the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard the voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We may say, well, good for you, Peter, James, and John, but what about the rest of us? Well, in the next verse, Peter continues, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed he sees the, the word of God more fully confirmed than what he saw with his own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, this word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, the glory of God is still better heard than seen. And it's, a, it's brightness doesn't just sit on someone's face for a while. Now the indwelling spirit takes that word of God and causes the brightness of that glory that God has shown to grow and to transform our very hearts. And in this way, the second thing that Moses' shining face means is that Jesus shows us each how to be like Moses. And I'm getting this primarily from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Because there, after talking about Moses' veil from this very passage, the apostle Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He then goes on to describe that light as something that we are shining out through the midst of suffering to a world that needs to be reconciled to God. So we, like Moses, can be people who radiate divine glory. And this is, this is a, a stunning end to this whole episode that started with the golden calf because think about it. Instead of Moses coming down off the mountain and being amazed at what he saw in the camp going on, instead, those in the camp were now amazed at what they saw in Moses. And in the same way, when we have been beholding the glory of the Lord, we are not shocked by the troubles of this world, but we come back with something to shock them into heaven's perspective. How do we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, remember in verse 29, it says, Moses was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Do you show any signs of being often in the presence of God, hearing from his word, conversing with him in prayer? Remember, what you look at determines who you are. We become what we worship. We become what we behold. So where are you spending your time? Even if that entertainment or leisure or busy work they're not bad in and of themselves, but consider the weight of it all. Consider the proportion of how your time is spent. What you look at determines who you are. 
So where are the people who have been with God? What do you need to stop looking at? What do you need to start looking at? Look at Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God is ours in the face of Jesus Christ. Look regularly, deeply at his story from across all the scriptures. In Jesus, we have lasting covenant with God. In Jesus, God has tabernacled among us. In Jesus, we have access to behold the glory of God. The the second after you have committed idolatry, you still have access to the glory of God because of Jesus. Will we use that opportunity? If you are in the favored one, Jesus, by faith, you can be assured that God knows your name. So approach him boldly in prayer, as Moses did, reminding him of his promises, telling him how much you long to perceive him more. Don't you think he'll love that and he'll give of himself freely? I know he will. This then is how God's purposes for his people are going to move forward through individuals who have been brought near by the mediator, now seizing hold of the gift of his presence, daring to to risk God's holiness. Why? Because in Christ, we can also bank on his friendship. So God, we ask for your help this morning. We are so prone to just wallow in the distance after we've sinned and we are so prone to look at anything other than you God we do ask that you would do a work in our hearts this morning where you would cause us to long to see your face that we would seek you diligently stubbornly like Moses did Lord we thank you that in looking at Christ, we do, we do soak up your glory and can pass it on to others, that they can see you in us. Lord, I pray that that would happen more and more. Thank you for the gift of your presence. Amen.